It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Well, today Pastor Rick begins a series entitled At the Foot of the Cross. Today Rick looks at Pilate and his story as he faces Jesus as king. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18 and 19, and let's join Rick in his sermon he's entitled, It's Fish or Cut Bait. Here's Rick. The sun had peaked at its noontime position when the crowd started cheering wildly. Now the game was over, but the celebration continued as the reality began to set in that the competition had been beaten and we had won. Now, no goalposts were going to be torn down. No net was going to be cut and then worn around the neck. No, no championship trophy was going to be raised in, in, in victory. No one was going to look into the camera and yell, I'm going to Disneyland. Because this wasn't a sporting event. It was a court of law. In this court of law... The, the crowd of people are down on the main floor, and up in the stands, if you can call it that, is one man who is both judge and jury all wrapped up into one. He's got a rather unique title. The title in this situation is procurator. And from his lofty perch, he gets to dispense justice as he sees fit. In other words, his power is absolute, and his judgments are final, and everybody knows that. And that's one of the reasons why the crowd is delirious in their cheering, because they've gotten what they came for. The underdog won on this specific day. And see, it's a rare event for the Jews at that time to be able to get what they want from the Roman authorities. But it had happened, and that's why the mob thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, the crowd continued to mill around, as often happens at the end of a victorious uh, event. And the procurator, from his judgment seat, watched them in silence. And I'm sure he was probably thinking over the last few hours of what all had just occurred and wondering, could it really have ended any other way? I'm sure he probably deeply sighed and rationalized, well, I've made my bed. Now I'm going to lay in it. And as he rises from the judgment seat to return to his palace, he pauses for a moment to look down at his soldiers laying a heavy wooden beam on top of the man who just got sentenced to die by crucifixion. He thinks for a moment, motions to one of his aides to come to him and says, I want you to make a sign. I want you to put it at the top of his cross so that let everybody who stands there at the foot of the cross read these words. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And with that final act, Pilate retreats back into his palace. Now, in most people's minds, Pontius Pilate ranks a a close second behind Judas in the Guinness World Book of Records under the title All-Star Dirty Crooks. This gentleman is recorded in history as being an arrogant, 
brutal and self-centered Roman bureaucrat. And folks, those were his good qualities. Pilate is always going to be remembered, isn't he, by the one who sent Jesus Christ to the cross. But what we often miss in the biblical record, and what we're going to look at today, is that Pilate deeply struggled in his encounter with Jesus. This normally very decisive administrator, we will see, vacillates back and forth in uncertainty. Save your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 18, starting at verse 28, and we're going to explore all the way down to chapter 19 and verse 16. And we're going to see in this passage how Pilate is constantly moving back and forth between public confrontation and then private conversation with Jesus. And what we're going to notice is that, frankly, Pilate doesn't know what to do with this guy. It's very important to understand the pressures that as governor he is under. Pressure number one. As procurator, Pilate is charged with being the keeper of Roman justice in this land. In other words, it was his job to get to the bottom of matters when they're brought to him in his court. So that meant at times having to see through political facades and intrigue and the typical smoke and mirror tactics that were even used back in that day. Interesting, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 18, in describing the same event, Matthew tells us what Pilate observed. Pilate observed he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. In other words, the Jews wanted Jesus dead out of resentment. And yet, as corrupt as he was, Pilate's conscience was struggling with this. I mean, look at chapter 18. Look at the first part of verse 31. So Pilate tells the Jews, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Notice, he's trying to stay out of this mess. (laughs) Such was the pressure of trying to administer Roman justice. But there's a second pressure I want to bring to your attention. And that is the provinces of Rome were only given procurators when they were difficult to manage. And this was the case in Israel. I mean, for years, trying to impose Roman rule in Palestine had set up either bloody confrontation or a very uneasy compromise. Now, Pilate, we know in history, has already angered the Jews a number of times. Some scholars believe that he had been reported to Rome as being a bad governor, and so he is under, I guess you would call it, a performance review by Tiberius Caesar, And obviously, Pilate does not need more trouble than he's already in. There's a third pressure that he's under. Pilate is very wary of the supernatural. Look at chapter 19. Look at starting at verse 7. The Jews answered Pilate and said, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Pilate was afraid because of the heavy influence of of Greek thinking in that day, which believed that the gods up in heaven had children through mortals. And those children had special powers because they were kind of They had divine parents. So 
the rumors that are circulating that Pilate, of course, has heard is that Jesus can do miracles. So if Jesus is one of these half-divine, half-human beings, then the last thing you want to do is to anger him or mistreat him. I mean, after all, who wants a God as an enemy? That's another pressure. But the fourth pressure is probably the most heavy of them all, and that is Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence. In fact, it was well known that Pilate knew he was innocent. In fact, later in Acts chapter 3 and verse 13, we're told, you handed Jesus over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, even though he, Pilate, had decided to let him go. Pilate was ready to release Jesus. And three things confirmed Pilate's or the innocence of Jesus to Pilate. First of all, it was his own interrogation. You notice here in this passage, three times Pilate declares, I find no guilt in him. If you have a pen underline chapter 18 and verse 38, he says it there. He also says it in chapter 19 and verse 4. He also says it over in chapter 19 and verse 6. And that's why when we read through this passage and we come down then to chapter 19 and verse 12, Pilate is trying to find a way to set Jesus free. His own interrogation proved it. This guy's innocent. But something else also proved it, and that is Herod's interrogation. In Luke's account of this of the story here, chapter 23, we, we're told by Luke that Herod toyed with Jesus. Herod mocked Jesus. Herod humiliated Jesus. But then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate with no charges. Third, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent because of his wife's belief. Sometime when you have a chance, go to Matthew chapter 27. You probably know it. Matthew 27 and verse 19, we're told, in the middle of the deliberation between Pilate and Jesus, Pilate's wife sends him a note, and it says on the note, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pilate should have listened to his wife. I wonder if later on she said, I told you so. (laughs) You know, someone has made the comment, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. Most of us live, if you think about it, under the same pressures Pilate lived with. Yeah, we've got a sense of what is just. We've got high ideals. We've got standards that we want to keep. And yet we're often pressured to bend or to compromise our ideals under the harshness of reality. And even though Greek mythology is not probably part of our normal thinking each and every day, yet spiritual matters are important to us. And we wonder if God's trying to tell us something through the events in our lives that we go through. And I mean, how often, like Pilate, do we, maybe we're trying to at least be ethical on some level, and our conscience keeps trying to get our attention by shooting 220 volts through our system. And yet everything around us tells us, don't just do whatever expedient, do whatever is, just compromise, give in a little bit, be more morally tolerant. And this is why I love this passage in talking or in describing what happened between Jesus and Pilate, because John does something very helpful for us. He gets us in behind the scenes. 
It's almost as if he gets us into the head of Pilate to understand what's going on there and what are his motivations. Because despite all those pressures that he's under, the tipping point does not come until chapter 19 and verse 12. What do we read there? But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. There's the tipping point. Pilate is faced with his choice of allegiance. So when you read that little phrase, a friend of Caesar, you need to understand this is not just talking about Roman patriotism. This is referring to being a supporter This is referring to being an associate, a member of the important inner circle. And in a broader sense, it really designated loyalty and commitment to the system with all of its values, all of its perks, all the sense of security that comes with it. And Pilate stood before a howling mob and suddenly saw that he was being asked to pledge his allegiance. And it was either going to be to this carpenter or it was going to be to Caesar. See, there's no way around it. Pilate was going to have to fish or cut bait. And what I find fascinating this week, especially as I was studying this, do you realize Pilate's experience is our experience? There's a timeless truth here that regardless of the unique pressures we are under, When we come face to face with the claims of Christ, it asks us to choose our allegiance. See, when we understand who Christ claims to be and why he he came to earth, it makes us choose a side. It makes us choose a loyalty. It makes us choose what's going to receive our wholehearted commitment that's, that's there inside of us just waiting to come out. And Pilate was rudely reminded that there are only two choices. It's either allegiance to Christ or it's allegiance to this world's system and whatever is the current Caesar. Now, have you ever wondered how can you tell where a person's allegiance really lies? Well, I think just watch how they steer a conversation. What subject do they always go to? Watch how they spend their money. Watch how they use their time. See, things like that will tell you what they're being really wholehearted about. And it may be their job. It may be some form of recreation like running or playing out in the desert or riding a bike. Well, no, riding a bike has nothing to do with it. Um, It could be a hobby. It could be travel. It could be the grandkids. It could simply be making more money. I don't know what it is. I can't prove it. But I suspect, I think there is something hardwired inside each of us that just yearns to be wholehearted about something. A couple years ago, USA Today ran a front page article on how the Vail Ski Resort up in Colorado had installed rooms at the top of their lifts in the restaurants where there were computers. And these computers were available for anybody on vacation to come in and check the stock market or to send and receive emails. The lines were long. One man made the comment, I just can't go a day on vacation without checking my stocks or checking in with the office. Ooh, maybe there's another way to find loyalty and allegiance. 
what must we have or what can we not do without even on vacation? And the claims of Jesus Christ and the reality of his life kind of rises to a climax here at this Resurrection Sunday time of year and it asks us, myself included, where is my allegiance? Okay, so what are the issues of allegiance? When we're faced with fish or cut bait over Jesus, what are we really choosing? Well, it boils down really to two very simple issues. It was the choice before Pilate, and I think you're going to see really quickly, it's the choice before each of us. And we see it in the, it pops right out of this conversation going back and forth between Pilate and Jesus. And it revolves around two themes. One, is Jesus a king? And does Jesus have a kingdom? Let's go explore there for a few minutes, all right? See, because when you pull the veneer off and come right down to the core issues, allegiance is a matter of two choices. Is Jesus my king and am I a part of his kingdom? And my answer determines what I obey and where I sense I belong. So let's take each one of those in, in turn. First, my allegiance can be seen clearly by what I choose to obey. Okay, let's return to the interchange here going on between Pilate and Jesus. What was the very first question that Pilate asked Jesus? And typically the very first question in a court of law is one of the most important ones. What does he ask in verse 33 of chapter 18? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, down in verse 37, Jesus affirms his identity, that you're right in saying that I am a king. Well, if he's a king, one of the rights of kings is that they have authority and people are to give obedience to their king. Now, look again at, at verse 37. So Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, yeah, you say I'm a king. And for this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Okay, so Jesus is explaining to us here that he came as a king and he came to bear witness to the truth. And so as we examine the words of Jesus, we have a king declaring what is true to us. If that's true, then that demands a response from us. So the implication is obvious. Jesus Christ is claiming to be a king who has come to give us truth, and that role as king is not ceremonial. He deserves our obedience because he honestly has authority. So do you see the, the implications for us? Am I seeing Jesus as a, as a king with a, just a lowercase k? Or do I see him as king with an upper class case k that trumps everything? I mean, Jesus himself bluntly cut to the heart of this when early in his ministry in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Or in John chapter 14 and verse 21, he makes the observation, he who has my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. So, so, so. If, if Jesus is king with a capital K and he's Lord with a capital L, then that means in every, every area of my life, he has the right to call the shots. 
And by the way, we're being naive if we don't face how hard that last statement of mine is to swallow because of the culture we live in that so highlights the individual and the independent line of thinking. It's hard. So it starts us thinking or going down a trail of asking questions like, well, is he king over each of my relationships, over my marriage, over my children, over the person that I'm dating? Is he lord over my school in the sense of the major I'm studying and how I study? Is he, is he king over the decisions that I'm making in my career, in my job, over my money, over my use of time, over my leisure activities? And the answers to, to questions like that are not found in what we say with words out of our mouths or by the way we pray or by the worship songs we sing. The answer is seen in how we live. It's behavior driven. Have I stepped on enough toes yet? Folks, I've stepped on my toes all this week. It's not fun. But I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're saying, Rick, Rick. It sounds like what you're saying is that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to take the checkbook of my life and rip out a check and make it out in order to Jesus Christ, sign it, and leave the amount blank. And yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's exactly what this says. That's a risky thing to do. Yes. It's a radical thing to do. Yes. And such is the radical nature of being a follower of Jesus Christ, my friends. He asks us to give him a triple A commitment, which means, Lord, anything, anytime, anywhere. But let me give you an insider's tip. I will never, ever trust him to give that kind of radical commitment and allegiance unless I am absolutely persuaded of his unconditional love for me. Knowing I'm loved and trusting him are tightly linked. And my allegiance is seen in my sincere desire to be wholehearted in my obedience to his authority because I've made the decision. He's king. He's king for me and with a capital K. Well, if that's not enough, let's look at the second concept of allegiance that comes again right out of this passage. And that is my allegiance is also seen by where I choose to belong. Where I choose to belong. Again, Pilate wrestled with the second thing about Jesus in his interrogation. Look at chapter 18 and verse 35. Jesus answered, when Pilate asked him, what have you done? Jesus answered and said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Again, Notice, Jesus is not only affirming he's a king, but he also claimed to be a king who has a kingdom, but this kingdom is not of of this world. It is not from this world. It's in another place. So Christ's kingdom is not something that can be visibly seen at this time, nor can it be physically touched. It's operating on a whole different level for a while. 
And there's the second important issue of allegiance. That for allegiance has to do with our identity, where we really believe we belong. It's where we call home. (laughs) A number of years ago, our family was living in Ethiopia. And I remember in our first year there, I was getting incredibly frustrated with the communist government and its bureaucracy. There was a communist government at that time. and isn't now, but there was then. Lines for basic food items were long and slow. Documents that I had to uh, give to the government were required in triplicate to be signed by men in different offices that were on opposite sides of the city that I lived in. And I remember one day I was, I was home and I was looking through a file uh, looking for some papers, and I came across my American passport, and suddenly a big grin broke out on my face. Because I realized that no matter how bad things got, I could leave. <laughs> this was not my home. I was an alien there. I was, I was a stranger there. And when it comes to my allegiance and my loyalty to Jesus Christ, something immediately changes when I become a follower of his, and it is my identity. I become a citizen of a new country, and yet, ironically, it's a home I've never visited and I've never even seen yet. See, allegiance to Christ is living in the reality that this world, my Monday through Saturday world, is not my home. My allegiance is really somewhere else. My sense of where I belong is focused in on Christ and his kingdom. That's where I really belong. In fact, the New Testament encourages this all over the place. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 repeats in another way. It says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires. You know, there's another place where it talks about it. Take your Bible, if you would. Um, turn further back in the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Follow along. I want you to listen as I read, but I want you to keep in mind allegiance, loyalty, where I belong, where's home. Keep that in mind. Listen. I'm starting at Hebrews 11, starting at verse... Well, we'll do verse 8 to 10 first. Um, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Okay, watch verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Okay, now jump down to verse 13. Now, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better 
country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. See, here are our heroes. Our heroes of the faith having to fish or cut bait. But by the way, look at that phrase in in verse 16. Are you convinced that Christ's heavenly kingdom is a better country? And our answer to that question speaks volumes about where my loyalty, where my allegiance really is. Let me, let me try to be real, real practical with this whole area of allegiance as a sense of my identity and where I belong. Um, let me just tell you how my mind tries to think through the very practical issues of this. So, for example, can I suggest that's worth evaluating ourselves in three areas, asking ourselves some pretty tough questions. Like, for example, when it comes to allegiance and loyalty, what is my commitment level to the status in this world? Meaning, how important is it for me to have the things that the world says spell success? Would a summary of my checkbook and credit card expenses indicate a loyalty to this kingdom or to Christ's kingdom? Is always moving up a priority with me? These are questions that surround status in the world. Or a second area is how dedicated am I to the appearance in this world? In other words, do I spend a lot of time making sure my image is right, that I'm always seen as doing the right thing? Am I deeply concerned about what other people think about me? Do I find myself saying what I know the other person wants to hear, but not necessarily expressing to them my convictions? See, that's all about appearance. Or let me give you a third. What is my gut-level attitude toward performance in this world? See, status, appearance, but then performance. So ask questions like, do I have to produce in order to feel good about myself? Is my identity tied up in how I perform against this world's standards? Would I feel hopeless and lost if my career or an important position or role was taken away from me? See, those are hard questions, aren't they? But they start to practically get at the core of, is my allegiance in the sense of belonging really here? Is home here or is home somewhere else? We read out loud at the start of our service from the Psalms. Let's read out loud something from 1 John, chapter 2. Well-known words that I think bear to be corporately reminded of. So read them out loud with me, all right? Let's read this together. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I'm sitting in the corner bakery this week. And I've got my pen and I'm, and I'm marking stuff in my Bible. And, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, who's really on trial here? It's not Jesus. It's Pilate. 
Pilate was the one who was actually on the stand, and when he came face to face with the claims of Christ, he had to choose an allegiance. And by the way, Luke's account of this story adds an important element to it. In chapter 23, verse 23 of Luke's account, he mentions that as Pilate sat on the judge's seat, he says, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that Jesus be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So I don't don't know where your allegiance is this morning. But I do know something. I do know the crowd around you is going to scream at a high volume to try and influence your decision here. Meanwhile, God never enters into a shouting match. You ever realize that? He never enters into a shouting match. Rather, it's amazing, but truth never screams to sway by sheer volume. Rather, our Savior stands and quietly says, listen to my words. Examine my life. I am a king. I have a kingdom. Are you with me? Let's pray. Lord, I am amazed... I am just absolutely amazed of your gracious way through your son of dealing with Pilate. If there was anyone who had the right to stand before Pilate and express either in anger or threats or high volume or in demands, who do you think you're talking to? It would have been Jesus. And yet he revealed the truth and left Pilate to make his choice. Father, thank you for your gracious way of moving in my life and in so many lives here this morning where you don't come with demands, you don't come with an upraised fist of who do you think you are? but you lovingly invite us to see what's true from the words of Jesus and to make our decision about, is he king with a capital K and am I aligned with his kingdom with a capital K? Father, there could be some here this morning that have felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit that there is an area in their lives that they've been holding on tightly to and they want to with open hands now this morning lay it back down at your feet and say it's yours not mine it's yours and it may be the umpteenth time that we've done this but once again this morning in response to your word we bring it and lay it down Father, this morning it could be that there are some who in coming and laying something down, that's not where the need is. Instead, there's a need to come and repent and to confess before you that the status and the appearance and the performance issues of this world have become my goals. 
and I confess that as true, and I repent of those this morning, wanting the truth from the lips of my king and the priorities of his kingdom to be what really motivates me. And so, Father, whether the response to you right now in this quietness, in the time of quietness we have here, is one of surrender and yielding, or whether it's one of confession and repentance. Thank you for your gracious heart that accepts broken people like us because you yearn for our wholehearted allegiance. Because not only is that your right, but that is what is so good for us. So, Father, whether we come with open hands or repentant hearts, we are grateful that we come to our Savior who says, welcome home. (laughs) Welcome home. So we commit ourselves this morning as your people to you in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.